All right, praise the Lord. Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. Now, there are a few scriptures that we're going to go through this morning, so I uh, assume everyone has their Bible and we'll, um, we'll proceed as we move along, but we want to make reference to establish a few things, so we're going to have to use the Word of God to do that. But I want to kind of follow on from some of the things that James was talking about because I have no doubt that we this morning that are gathered, we have a genuine concern for our nation. We have a genuine concern uh, in the direction that we observe and what's going on around us and it's been obviously going on for years and upon this slippery slope but no doubt it's, it is an acceleration if you want to call it and there's always, as they say, a tipping point. <coughs> but um, as we've been praying about that, as we're pondering it, there's lots of things that we observe and it's just crazy, really. It's insane to see. Uh, even in recent, we had our first sitting Prime Minister attend the Mardi Gras last week and the opposition leader, he was there as well and, um, and then I even heard that the New South Wales government was issuing a police force or, the, or was it the police force I think it was, was issuing a formal apology to all those that were involved in the first Mardi Gras back in 1978. And so... Um, it shows you the, the, the shift that is taking place in light of the so-called safe schools program, which is anything far from safe. And, um, you know, and, uh, and just the tentacles of what's going on around us and the, the way that it's trying to just web everyone in. Like I said, it's targeting our youth, it's targeting children and wanting to access their minds to shape them. And what we're dealing with is wicked and it's evil. And we're seeing this and, uh, and it's, it's, uh, no doubt uh, it causes us much, much grief as we observe the sexual immorality and, uh, uh, and everything that's just going on. And uh, like, you know, my kids sometimes I'll watch an interview and they'll say, Dad, stop talking to the TV. <laughs> and I'll say, because uh, I'm ready to engage a few things, amen. My very nature, uh, the, I get fired up at some of the things I hear, some of the rationale, some of the stupidity, just all that's going on. I mean, the feminism, and I, I say that since, uh, seriously. I mean, it's happening everywhere. There's, it's just crazy. And, uh, and you, as a Christian, you feel the effects of that because it encroaches upon you. And so, you know, you, you have to push it back. You have to stand up and, and be heard and... You have to do something. But the question is, okay, well, what do we do? How do we go about it? How do we stem the tide of wickedness that, um, that we are observing in the world around us? And so, what things can be done? Can we delay the inevitable, so to speak, as we consider all of these things? And um, uh, there's just these questions that pose themselves. How do we go about it? What is it that we, we, we should do and need to do? And this has got my mind thinking now for some time and um, there was a sister, as was Natalie, she rang up to speak to my wife last week and she was just sharing with me how she, they, last week they'd been down at Warrandyte with Sam and was witnessing to a, uh, a couple of ladies and Natalie began to engage in that as well and um, she was just speaking about how 
having spoken about the gospel and sharing all the things they were sharing and how at the end of the day one woman had lost her husband recently and, and yet in light of the, some of the circumstances she was just saying uh, that still there was a, an air of arrogance and aloofness that was forthcoming and, uh, and, and then she said, you know, what's it going to take? What's it going to take? And so as you think, what is it going to take? for the, the, the world that we're living in to come to this realisation and to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God that they would submit themselves to the unto the Lord. What is it going to take? And so I know our intent is to stop the, the course of evil and we, 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 uh, to the degree that we are able, we, we must stand up and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and continue to do so. But I want to consider with you a principle in the Word of God that relates to some of the things that we're talking about. And I want to, it, it lays down for us uh, a, the process or the principles, if you want to call it, that govern uh, the ways of God, the way in which he works with nations, with individuals. And it's, in, it's interesting and it's important for us to understand this because there is a process. It's just the way that it is. Outside of God's supernatural and divine intervention, which does, can and does happen, uh, but there is also the laws of God that are, are, are at work. And so I want to consider this as we find it uh, first revealed here. Well, I don't know if it's first revealed, but we find it in Exodus chapter 2. And it applies not just to the sinner, but it has its application also unto the saint in the way in which God deals with us to bring us to a place where we will ultimately willingly humble ourselves before him. So let's look at Exodus and we want to read from chapter 2 verse 23, a portion of scripture relating to the nation of Israel uh, in Egypt. The Bible says, Now it happened... In the process of time that the king of Egypt died, then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. God, so God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob and God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. I want to look at with you at crying out to God. Crying out to God. What does it take to bring an individual or a nation or a people to the point of crying out to God? Well, the Bible reveals it as we shall see. In our text, there is a clear indication for us that sets the precedent because it, it says, and that's what I want to consider firstly, it says in verse 23, in the process of time. In the process of time. Now that's a key word, that's a key phrase to understand in the scriptures and how that applies because it gives us insight to the ways of God, the dealings of God, the workings of God and it's interesting to note that when we consider the issue of Israel, I mean, especially in Egypt and the deliverance, we understand the typology that is associated there as it relates to Egypt being symbolic, of course, of the world. Pharaoh, who ruled and brought them into hard bondage, is symbolic of the devil. And so we understand that coming out, Israel coming out of Egypt is the ecclesia, the church, 
And so the exodus there, and that is the, those being called out, which incorporates the church as we know it. So we see the, the, the spiritual lessons and parallels that are associated with that. And that kind of gives, so as we consider these things in the natural sense, we can understand some spiritual truths as well. And we find here, it says, Now in it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Now, it's important for us because when uh, the Israelites first went into Egypt, they dwelt and they were put into the best place, into the land of Goshen. And so it was there that they they were brought in through Joseph and and they were placed into that, that area and plot of field and they prospered. They prospered abundantly and uh, they multiplied as God continued to bless them. But you see, they, as the, in the process of time, the king died and circumstances began to change. And there arose a king who didn't know uh, Israel or the, uh, obviously Joseph and the history there. And so uh, there was a complete shift and for various reasons um, the, the, the Pharaoh began to oppress the people of Israel and bring them into hard bondage. And so this is the circumstances that surround the nation of Israel. And we find also <coughs> in the process of time that, uh, that the king of Egypt died and then it says, then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. Then, in the process of time, then the children of Israel began to groan because of the bondage and they cried out to God. You see, that cry was not immediate. It was in the process of time. It was a progressive thing. And so it was as circumstances changed, it's as they found themselves in slavery, as they found themselves in bondage, as, they, as, as, the, as the hard labour of that began to uh, uh, um, take its toll over the course of time, and in this case years, it brought them to a place of absolute helplessness and hopelessness and all they could do at this given moment was cry out to the Lord. But it was in that that God heard their cry. It says in verse 25, God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. God acknowledged them. He understood. He saw the bondage. The Bible says their cry came up to God because of the bondage. And that's interesting for us to note. See, Egypt being a picture of the world and we are born in in sin. We are born with a sinful nature and we grow up and we understand that uh, we live in this world and people begin to give themselves over to the pleasures of this life and all that the world has to offer. And, and sin advertises and people, as they grow up in their youth, they don't hold back and we can all testify to this in one form or another. But you see, whatever the freedoms and, uh, that life advertises, it ultimately brings people into bondage. Isn't that true? You see, that's the nature of Pharaoh. That's the nature of the devil. His intention is to bring people into bondage. You see, sin is always appealing and it promises so much fulfilment and it brings about so much freedom. You know, people say, now that I've come out, I feel so free. See, that's the lie from the pit of hell. You see, the prodigal son, when he went out, he thought that, that, you know, as he began to embark on his journey, he thought that freedom was before him until in the process of time he found himself in the pig pen in bondage. 
And this is the progression, this is how it works. There is a a consequence of sin and sometimes uh, it is not immediate. Just because uh, we can commit sin and we don't see an immediate death at work or some consequence play itself out immediately in our lives, then we kind of think, okay, well we can just continue on this path. And it's dangerous in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Verse 11, the Bible says, Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. And so because they don't see an immediate consequence, because the fire of God doesn't fall and zap them right there and then, they think that that human nature is such that we think we can get away with it. We think we can continue and, uh, to, con- to live and conduct ourselves in a certain way and the scripture is telling us because of this, because the sentence is not immediately executed, the tendency of the human heart is to harden and is to grow more and more proud and pride-filled, more and more arrogant and indifferent to God and, uh, and, and their hearts become set to do evil. And isn't this the inclination that we're seeing around us in the world today? On, from the top now, from the very top uh, of echelons of government, we're seeing this infiltrated, and there's there's a set, seems to be a set course. You see, but in light of that, let it be stated, Amen, that the laws of God still stand. You will reap what you sow, and if you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. And this is the way in which it works. You see, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1, on three occasions it says that God gave them over. He, God gave them up to their sin to commit that which was evil and wickedness and the full manifestation of that was that men began to exchange the natural use of the woman. Men with men, women with women. And not only that, the chorus was there singing hallelujah and uh, saying how great this was. And so what we find is that as we look at these things, you cannot uh, underestimate the fact that there is a, the judgment of God is playing itself out in people's lives and they don't even know it. But that's what the Bible's telling us. You see, in the process of time, man's heart grows harder and more proud and more arrogant and more indifferent to God. Now, let me ask you this question. In such a state, will that person, generally speaking, turn to the Lord? No, they won't. Whilst men still have a sense of freedom, they will not immediately turn to the Lord while they still think that everything's okay, that they're in control, that there's no consequence for what's going on, then they have no inclination of heart. Actually, the opposite is what the scripture teaches, as they harden themselves against God. And one day God will harden their heart in the context of him bringing his ultimate judgment. But you see, this is the progressiveness, this is the progression, and it happens in the process of time. You see, the Bible clearly teaches us the thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. And we're dealing with a generation that is under the sway of the wicked one. They are of their father the devil. 
That not, shouldn't be so surprising some of the things now that we are observing although, uh, because if we can track this progression you can see that some of these things are the courses almost to a degree is being set. And so we see these things around us and we see that the enemy is at work. We see his fingerprints everywhere around us and we, we, we are rightly indignant at these things. But you see, he who sins is a slave to sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death and that's not death just after you die and go to hell but rather you will reap now because the wages of sin now is death and it continues to play itself out in the lives of so many. You see, in the process of time, things can and they do change. Israel experienced this. The prodigal son experience this. You and I experience this. And, it's a, and we realise that this is the nature of how things work. You see, the Bible says in the process of time, verse 23, then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. Then. Why didn't they do it before? <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like it was not happening at that point. But now, then the children of Israel grow. And see, circumstances got worse. And, uh, and, and, this, and they began to identify and feel the effects of that more severely, which led, then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. There was a deep groaning, a sigh, and they cried out to God in their exasperation, in their desperation. They had reached a point in their lives where they said, enough is enough, I can't take this anymore. I can't continue to live like this. I can't continue to live this way. And right there, the Bible says their cry came up to God. In Deuteronomy Chapter 26, if you could turn there, we find this being reiterated for us. <coughs> Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 6. The Bible says, But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. Then we cried out to the Lord. Then we cried out to the Lord, God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and looked upon our affliction and our labour and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. You see, again, this same thing is being identified and highlighted. And their groaning, uh, their bondage and the circumstances that they found themselves in led to a groaning and it produced in them a desperation to cry out to God. And God heard and God got involved. And this is a very significant cry of the human heart. A cry that gets God's attention. Can you say Amen? You see, this is what it takes, church. This is what it takes for a nation. This is what it takes for an individual. This is what it takes for the sinner to come to Christ. That they would so be broken, that they would so come to the end of themselves, that they would cry out to God and God will hear that cry. 
and uh, in doing so he will bring about a mighty work and a miracle through signs and wonders, amen, and bring that person out of darkness into light. And this is what we call the glory of salvation, hallelujah. But this is the principle, this is, the, this is how it works. But this, another aspect that I just want us to quickly consider, and it applies also to the saint. So this principle that we're looking at in the context of the sinner and salvation, but you know, in the ways of God and the workings of God with his people and with the saints, which is us, we find a similar principle, or the same actually, the same principle and pattern. And you can look at this in the scripture, it's clearly there for us to observe and you see it over and over and over. How many times when God took Israel out did he warn them? He warned them of disobedience and the consequences of their disobedience and you find this right throughout the, uh, the, the Old Testament writings and yet we find that in light of the fact that they were warned over and over, God said to them, if you disobey, then the consequence will be oppression, affliction and bondage. He said, uh, he will bring, he'll bring you back even. And so this is the pattern in which God would work in order to discipline and to chastise the children of Israel to bring them to a point where he would brought about deliverance. And so I turn to the book of Judges. I want to look here at a few scriptures with you. Again, uh, something probably that most of us are familiar with, but it does us well to consider it. Judges chapter 3. Because remember, after Joshua and that generation passed, the new generation that came up was not walking in the ways of the Lord as they were required to and ought to have. And so we have various instances throughout the book of Judges where they, Israel had disobeyed God, they had departed from God and so we find on various occasions they were brought into bondage and then they cried out to God and then God would raise up a deliverer. And we find that over and over again. So let's just look at it. Chapter 3 and let's look at verse number 9. Uh, we find the first instance here. And it says, When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Because uh, it's actually, um, in verse seven, let's go back to verse 7. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. And God's anger was aroused against them and he sent, uh, he sold them, listen in verse 8, and he sold them into the hand of Cushat, uh, whoever, king of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served him for eight years. Eight years of bondage. Then, listen, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, when they cried out, God raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them. You see, in light of the purposes of God, God sold them into slavery in order to humble them, in order to bring about a discipline and to bring them to the point of when which they would cry out to God because the truth is, prior to that, they would never have cried out to God. In serving the false gods and in serving the foreign gods, they thought initially, this is great. We're free, the freedom. <laughs> this is fantastic. But they were soon to realise that they were going to find themselves in bondage and as that bondage and affliction played itself out over the course, in this case, eight years, then, that, then they cried out to God and God heard their cry and he raised up a deliverer. Go to chapter 4 in Judges. It says in, um, we'll read from verse 1. It says, when Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again 
did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Hazor, uh, the commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in that place there. Okay. <laughs> now verse three, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had nine hundred chariots of iron. And for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. 20 years now. It wasn't eight years. It took 20 years. It took 20 years for them to come to the point in which they would cry out to God, in which they would come to that place of desperation where they would groan in their spirit and say, enough's enough. And then they would lift up their voice and cry out to God and God would hear the cry and he would raise up a deliverer. This is the pattern. Go to chapter 6. Chapter 6, we find again another example. We'll start at verse 1 and we'll jump down. But verse 1 says, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And now let's go down to verse 6. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord and it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet to to the children of Israel who said to them thus says the Lord God of Israel I brought you up from out of Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Isn't this a sad testimony? But the Bible says that these things will happen to them as an example, that they wouldn't happen to us. They're there to teach us a lesson. They're, they're, They're for our admonishment to warn us, to teach us because the reality is is we can fall into this very same trap. And yet we find this pattern of bondage that God brings upon them to humble them, to bring them to the point where they will cry out to the Lord. The word here in verse 6, it says, so Israel was greatly impoverished. Or in other words, when you were sold into slavery, when you become brought into bondage, you will find that your spiritual life will so suffer that you will be greatly impoverished. That word in the, in the Hebrew literally means to become feeble, to be oppressed, to dry up, to be emptied, to be made thin. And that, well, that's what happens to your, your inner man. The impoverished, the, being so impoverished in your spirit because of disobedience to God, because of turning away from the Lord, whatever the case or situation is, the consequences of that play themselves out over the course of time and we think we can just keep pushing on. It's all right, I know it's not right, but I'm going to keep pushing on. And you just, you know what? You can never, ever win. You cannot disobey God and ever get away with it. You never win. You will lose and God brings us to this point. He has his ways and he brings us into bondage and if it takes five years, ten years, it doesn't matter. The Lord will bring us to that place where we come and to the end of ourselves and we say, Lord, enough's enough. We groan and we cry out and God intervenes. But remember, it happens in the process of time in the process of time. It's not immediate, is it? 
Sometimes it can be. Sometimes it is. And thank God for that. But generally speaking, this is how it works. Go to Judges chapter 10. There's an interesting scripture here. Go to chapter 10 and go to verse 10. I mean, uh, again, it says the children of Israel in verse 6 did evil in the sight of the Lord and, and so forth and God sold them into bondage again. But in verse 10, as they came to a place where they were severely distressed, it says in verse 9, in verse 10 it says, And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, did I, did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and the people of Ammon and from the Philistines? Also from uh, the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites and oppressed you and you cried out to me and I delivered you from their land. God says time and time again, I have delivered you when you cried out because of the affliction. He's laying out how often this has occurred. But yet in verse 13, he says, Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will deliver you no more. He's, God is exasperated at, the, at their state and their heart. He says in verse 14, Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. Then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead and the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders, said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight? And God raised up a deliverer. But the Bible says, God gets to the point where he says so many times, and this is, I mean, we can be so stupid. And yet God will deliver us time and time again. But in this instance, the scripture says that God said, that's enough, enough's enough. You go, you cry out to your gods, let them deliver you. But yet as he saw their oppression, the Bible says that his heart could not endure it any longer. His soul could not longer endure the misery of Israel. Thank God for such a merciful God. I mean, he has every right just to wipe us aside. He has every right just to zap us, amen, and yet, in, in, and yet he observes our state which we have created for ourselves and yet when his soul could no longer endure what he was observing, he again intervenes and hears their cry. But you see, it's all in the process of time that they come to this place, that we come to this place. Again, I've got, let's go to Psalm 107. Turn over there, Psalm 107. There's a couple of scriptures here that I'm referring to, but I want us just to see this. Psalm 107. Now, the scripture says, we'll go to verse 6. And the psalm is is about... um, the psalm is about a thanksgiving to God for his works of deliverance that he's brought about for the children of Israel and it's recounting these historical facts. And in verse 6 it says, then, um, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them out of their distresses and he 
led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that man would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of man. Now, again, they're thanking God, but look at verse two, uh, 10. Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and iron, because they rebelled against the words of God. That's why they were in that state. And despised the counsel of the Most High God. Therefore he brought down their heart with labour. He brought down their heart. He humbled them and uh, uh, with hard labour they fell down and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke the chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness. Again, go down to verse 17. It says, Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, they were afflicted. Again, it's clear how and why this is happening. Their soul abhorred abhorred, uh, all manner of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Oh, that man would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness. You see, this is the pattern, church. And yet, in spite of us and in spite of our insistence and our nature, God has his ways to work and in the process of time, he will bring us to that point of bondage and in that bondage, to whatever degree is required, our heart will be brought low. We will be humbled until we reach that point where we say, God, and we cry out to God and thank God that he hears our cries. When we don't deserve to be heard, but yet God hears. David knew this personally. See, we're tracking some of these things and I won't read it, but you can read in your own time in Psalm 38. But David knew this personally himself and he talks about his sin and how he remained silent and how that over the period of time began to work in him and he began to waste away and, and the affliction and the oppression that it brought about in his life and it became so severe that he says, I groaned in my heart with the turmoil, I groaned because of the turmoil of my heart and the anguish of my soul and he says, I sighed unto the Lord. You see, he didn't come to that place immediately. It was in the process of time. And sometimes we... we, And and, and remember, God does in his mercy. He does act in his sovereignty and his grace. So don't misunderstand my point here, but I'm laying down a principle in the context of we're considering our own nation and some of the things that are going on around us and what's it going to take? Well, I think we find here a little lesson for us to acknowledge. See, sin has to be allowed to take its course. When people come to the end of themselves and they groan deep within themselves, when when their sin has humbled them in such a point and crushed them before the Lord in such a way that they will willingly cry out to God. And then God hears. You see, there's a couple of words in the Hebrew and the Greek that relate to the word crying out. And I'm not going to go uh, through them in any... Um, 
detailed way, but other than just to point them out. But they all carry the same connotations with little subtle variations. But you know, it's a cry of deep distress to cry out to God, a cry, a cry of deep distress, a cry out for help. Help me, God. It means to call out with a loud sound. Oh, to get to the point. When you're desperate, you just don't say, oh God, help me. I mean, you are crying out to God. It's a cry for help. You know, there's two Greek words and um, one of them means to implore with a strong voice and it's found in, in the Gospels on a couple of occasions but it refers to the blind man as he's sitting beside the road and Jesus is walking past and, um, and uh, he's aware and he's calling out and he's crying out and, uh, and then they tell him to keep silent. And the Bible says he cried out even more. But he got God's attention. God heard his cry. Jesus heard his cry and came over to him and said, what do you want? What's your need? And so, you know, that cry of the human heart can't be manufactured just by us. See, that, the, the, the cry that we're talking about has to be a result of God's dealings and God's workings with us as he brings us many times to a place where when we cry out to God, that's all we can do. And we yell out sometimes in our desperation and our exasperation and we cry out to God. But I'm telling you, it's in that place, church, that God will move. God will meet with you. God will touch you. He will bring deliverance. Hallelujah. Because that's how God works. You know, one man said, crying out to God is an act of desperation and total concentration total concentration because I tell you that's when God's got our attention can you say amen up until that point our mind's elsewhere but when we're crying out to God it's an act of not only desperation but of total concentration and I tell you it's symbolic of a few things because crying out to God represents a couple of things and and this is what God is working uh, through that various bondage in our lives or in in an individual's lives and it's this There's a disposition of heart that God is trying to accomplish and first and foremost it's genuine humility that we would be humbled under the mighty hand of God and that's what this nation requires. It has to be humbled under the mighty hand of God. We have to come to a place in our cry where it represents an unconditional surrender to God where we say enough's enough. I'm going to stop. I give up. I yield, Lord. And so we find it's genuine humility. It's unconditional surrender. Unconditional. No strings attached. It's whatever you say, Lord. Yes, yes, Lord. When Paul the Apostle was met by, by Jesus on the road to Damascus, he knocked, was knocked off his high horse, as we use the phrase, and his first words were, Lord, what do you want me to do? Unconditional surrender. Then there's a plea for mercy in this cry for help. God, help me. You've got to help me because no one else can because we are in a place of personal helplessness. And, in, and lastly, what it reveals, it reveals that cry for help is an act of faith. Can you say amen? Because you are calling out to God. 
For now that you have been brought into the place of submission and you are yielding to God and you are calling out to God, you are calling out because in the end of the day you are trusting that God's going to help you. Why are you crying out? You're crying out for help and God hears your cry. You see, the human heart, when it comes to this place, God cannot but hear. He's, the Bible tells us in Psalm 34, 18, it says that, that the, Lord is, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. And he says, such as have a contrite spirit. And so when we come to that place of brokenness, when the consequences of sin have fulfilled their purposes and in the process of time we have been humbled before the Lord, God sees, God moves, God acts on our behalf and he comes to us in our filth and in a state of heart and he takes us and he draws us to himself. Hallelujah. That's what he did with Israel. I think it's Ezekiel 16. talks about it. God says, this is the condition I found you in. God says to us, look at the condition I was in when I came to God. I look back and I, 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 I cringe. But God took us in that place and he took us and he cleaned us up. Hallelujah. But you see, it's going to take more than just tears. Can you, can you say amen? You see, repentance, though many times may involve tears, it's not dependent on tears. Repentance is a, a change. It means to turn around. It's to go this way. It's a change of mind, a change of life, a change of act, action. And yes, it can happen uh, through tears, but that doesn't mean... You know, I've seen people cry, but they haven't changed. I've seen people broken... And, and you know that they're broken and they're, 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 there's this, they're crying but there's still not at that, that point that they're crying out to God. They're not at that point yet where they would be utterly humbled, unconditional surrender, total obedience to God. And then you think to yourself, what's it going to take? You see... <clears throat> In light of all this, let me say this, church, in, in light of all of these things, this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. You see, it's in this state that the gospel becomes a reality. And so we understand, James was pointing out to the ministry of Christ earlier when he, when he quoted um, Luke chapter 4, verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me because he's... I've, you know, and uh, to heal the brokenhearted, to set at liberty those that are oppressed, to set the captives free. And this is the ministry of Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, the Bible tells us in Acts 10 verse 38 how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested and he would destroy the works of the devil. And you see, he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And so God sees the cry of the human heart. He sees the condition. He sees the depletion. He sees the impoverishment of years and the process of time. What happens to people's lives, whether through their own sin or through being victims to the sins of others, whatever the circumstances may be, but he sees a suffering humanity. What's sad is he sees a suffering humanity and we see a suffering humanity but yet we don't see people yet brought to that point of crying out to God, do we? And we ask ourselves, why? What's it going to take? And that's a legitimate question to ask. 
You know, Romans 1 tells us that God gave them over to their sin and they reaped within themselves the consequences of sin. But the reason for that, even though the wrath of God is revealed in heaven against all ungodliness, the gospel, that's why you've got to read in chapter 2 and 3 and onwards because the whole plan and purpose of God is that they would be such that they would experience the grace and love and forgiveness and mercy of God, that they could be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And so, yes, so there is a progression. There is a, 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 a depravity that begins to accelerate and we begin to observe. But I tell you, at the end of the day, let it fulfil its course and whatever it takes for a nation to be humbled under the mighty hand of God, then we will begin to see the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ take effect. How, how, how fast can it happen? I don't know. But it will be in the process of time. It could be a short time. It could be a long time. I don't know. You know, the Jesus movement came out of the hippie movement. That was a short period of time, wasn't it? Because they had given themselves so over, so rapidly to sin and they'd reaped so quickly the consequences and yet they were disillusioned uh, after years of living a certain way that so many, God began to move upon a generation. We could see that again. How will it work? I, don't, I can't exactly tell you, but doesn't, what I know is this, the darker it gets, it only gives the opportunity for the light of the gospel to penetrate. Amen. This greater, the darker it gets, amen, the more we, can, we, we pray and we cry out to God ourselves that God would intervene. <coughs> you know, I just uh, heard and read recently that Australia's suicide rate is as high as it's been in 13 years. There's people suffering, church. And there's no hope. They, they see themselves as no hope, so we have a, a, a generation that is giving themselves over to suicide, taking their own lives of a place of hopelessness. And so uh, this is symbolic of the age in which we're living in and we need to tell them that there's an answer, that Jesus Christ is the answer. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, how, can they, how should they believe on him whom they have not heard? How, how shall they call upon him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And so we are required to preach the gospel. That is what our calling is. Because out of the heart one believes unto, uh, unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And what we need, amen, is we need people to be born again. We don't want to see uh, the uh, reformation of society for what? On what basis? And it's going to hell anyway. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ to change the hearts of men. We need people to be born again. And in the depravity of their sin, our calling is to preach the gospel. Our calling is to declare the gospel unadulterated. We're living in a generation that has diluted the message of the cross and the power of God is in the cross. Christ and Him crucified and if we will declare it, and the Bible says law to the proud and grace to the humble and if we will declare the righteousness of God, if we will declare the cross and all that it entails, then our confidence is in God's Spirit. The Holy Ghost to accomplish what only He can. 
and in the midst of us doing the work that we're required to do, we then can find ourselves in a place where we begin to pray and intercede and call upon God for these individual lives. We don't want to rationalise about certain things. I saw just recently uh, an interview with, and you know, and I, I have to say, I, I was disappointed and saddened, and I felt, you know, and then the next day the headline said, uh, you know, uh, Christian finds himself thrown into a pack of lions, and he was. But you know, the way to get you those lions under control, preach the gospel. I saw somebody trying to rationalise and reason and I just said to myself, that's not what God has called us to do. Preach the gospel. Well, then you might not have that platform again. doesn't matter. We're not after a platform. We're after souls. And if our preaching of the gospel caused a greater rebellion, that's not our fault because that is God bringing the, the generation and this nation and the individuals to a point when they will willingly, in the process of time, cry out to God. We just have to preach it. We have to declare it. We just have to stand. And we can preach through the social issues of our days. I've got no problem addressing the issues. But address them in light of sin and address them for what they are. And we, don't refer, we, and we talk about sin and unrighteousness for what it is. And use that as the backdrop, or as, 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 as some, and then the, the backdrop is the cross, and you preach and you put it all into context, so you can you can modernise it in that sense. But that's the way in which it is to be done. You see, I just want to turn our attention before we conclude. And as I was preparing this last little section, as I was pondering it, I had to again reflect upon myself. And I want us to reflect upon ourselves because let us ask this question this morning. Where are we at in light of this? Because do we have a heart for the lost? Can we hear their cries for help? Because so often we can get caught up in ourselves and be so oblivious to the world around us and we can be disconnected when God has called us to connect. You see, it was William Booth who founded the Salvation Army and he had a, I've read his um, biography and, and uh, he talks about earlier on before the, the movement of the Salvation Army came into the full force how God had given him a dream and how he'd had a dream and, and in that dream the waves were roaring and the people were scattered in the waters, they were drowning, people were crying out here and there and and he was there on this raft and he was pulling people out of the water one by one. He was, and it was a picture of the desperation of, obviously in that time it was uh, you know, England, in London there and, uh, and they began to preach the gospel and they began to see people saved and it, it moved into a mighty movement of God. It was a salvation army. And yet, uh, uh, and so when you read about William Booth and that movement, uh, it is inspiring because it's not nothing what you know of the Salvos now. It's nothing. That is a shadow, not even a shadow of what the Salvation Army was in its formation and how, it, how God did use it. You mean, you know, I'm not here to talk about all the ins and outs, whether they were perfect in their doctrines and stuff like that. Uh, I'm talking about God took, up, uh, took a people that were just ordinary people 
and he made of them a mighty army that brought the gospel to the nation of England and to the nations of the world in which they saw in that era a mighty, mighty move of God. And so we're called into this place. We're called to cry out on behalf of the world around us as we see the evil and the wickedness and we get indignant and we get angry and rightly so. But you know what? Let's not become self-righteous because never forget where we came from. But let us understand that, let us take that as the motivation to cause us to come before the Lord and begin to pray and to seek God and to call upon God and be, uh, in such a way that we would begin to cry out on their behalf that they would come to the place where they would cry out. And we can, in, we can, we can take that place, we can do that. It was, uh, again, I'll tell you another story of uh, William Booth and, and some members of the Salvation Army. There's a story that uh, goes that there were two men that went out to another nation, I think, or somewhere to start a new work and to start a church and they were met with great opposition and they were, weren't seeing much fruit as they were preaching the gospel and so as they were labouring they were becoming discouraged because they were met with such failure and opposition and in their place of exasperation, they sent a, uh, they wrote to the general, as he was known, and to seek some advice on what they should do and what their next step should be. And William Booth sent them back a telegram with two words on it. Two words. Try tears. And I read that and I think to myself, Lord, yeah, that speaks to me. That should speak to us all. Try tears. Cry out to God. Because maybe God's waiting for his people to come to that place. Because we are, here in Australia, we've got it too good. There's too many distractions. There's too many things that tie us up into other things that we don't get as serious as we ought to. And we don't, we don't see God as we ought to. But to see, this is what they did and, and, and it's recorded that they saw God move in, in their midst in a mighty way. And so that is a bit of a challenge for us in light of this as well. But let me just rephrase and just conclude this as we come to an end. What is it going to take for this world, for this nation to come to its knees? I'll say to you, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. That could mean some serious stuff. Yep. I'm talking stuff that we don't even fathom. You know, the, 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 the world is a hostile place, church. There's things going on in the world that we don't think, you know, peace and safety. There's stuff going on and we're not immune from it. God has his ways. You know, I look at third world nations, or some third world nations, and I, I, if you understand... I look and I think, why, Lord, some of these nations in this condition? And if you understand, you begin to realise as you scrape beneath the surface, you begin to see that there's severe witchcraft and you know, demonic forces that are at work in their midst, which I believe, as in the ways of God with nations, this is how it plays itself out. But then I look at some of these places and we've known over the years of the mighty moves of God that have taken place. And, and uh, why? Because these people have been brought to a place where they've got nothing. They're ravished. They're, impover they're, they're impoverished. 
They've got nothing. All they have and all they can do is cry out to God. And we see multitudes that are being saved and that are are saved through these circumstances. And so this is the way the gospel works. Australia's got it too good. See, prosperity is dangerous. Persecution, in the Acts, persecution caused the church to grow. Prosperity has its inherent dangers and if we don't guard our hearts, church, it, it brings us into place and if not careful, it'll bring us into bondage. And God will have to not only humble a nation, he'll have to humble his people. To what point that we would come to a place of surrender and yield and make sure that we're prioritising the kingdom of God and saying, yes, Lord, you're first. I will, and, and, and this issue of first fruits and this issue of first place and that he is Lord of all. And, that, and that's, the, that's how we must walk. That's how we much, must live. Praise the Lord. And so, maybe there are too many in Australia that have got it too good. And I believe that there are already people that are groaning. We know that. And let me say this. In the process of time, there's going to be many, many more. I guarantee it. And we must be prepared. We must be ready. We must preach the gospel. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Father, we just thank you for the word of God this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the ministry of your spirit. God, we sense, Lord, the seriousness again, O oh God, of what we're dealing with. And God, we, we, we are concerned, Lord, for our nation. We're concerned, Lord, as we see the sin that is accelerating and we see the perversion, Lord, that, the, the, and the wickedness of this generation. And God, what we need is the divine intervention. I pray, God, whatever it takes, but humble men under the mighty hand of God. In the process of time, Lord, bring them to a place where men and women would cry out to God. And Lord, as your people, that we would cry out on their behalf, Lord, that we would intercede, that we would pray. It was Rachel who said, Lord, give me children lest I die. See, there's an act of desperation, even from our part, Lord, when we're not content with barrenness, oh God, and we're not trying to rationalise it away or justify it. Because, Lord, you are a miracle-working God. And, Lord, our faith is, is, even though we see these principles, Lord, you are sovereign. God, you can cause things to happen in an instant. You can change things right now, God. Nothing is too hard for you. And, God, we look unto you this morning. And I pray, God, that we would take heed to these words. We would go forward and we would be men and women that would preach the gospel. We would expose the unfruitful works of darkness. In the hope, O oh God, that, that people would hear, that you would convict men and women of their sin, that you would open the eyes of the blind, that they would come to themselves, O oh Lord, and that they would be saved. We're praying, God, for salvation of souls. Have mercy, God. Have mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.